Alright. I was thinking about making some tea or something, you know. Okay, we, we don't we, we have plenty of tea on the on this podcast as it is. We don't need you to bring in more. works which i know in one of the midland counties unfortunately concentrated consecrated for t- engines of war he, he's so fucking he's such a fucking he's so drama he's extra who we talking about kropotkin he's drama uh kropotkin's baby no he is not baby <laughs> <laughs> kropotkin is not baby kropotkin like drinks tea every day like a baby <laughs> Preaching socialism off the back of his yacht. Right, I literally had someone. Like, I made a comment. Somebody was going like, "Oh, we need to, we need to make sure that we're not, we're bringing people up for socialism, not bringing people down for socialism." And I was like, Kropotkin. I throw the bre- conquest of bread book at them, and they're like, um, first of all, he was a bougie motherfucker, and now he said, I'm like, dude, he literally argued for the for having luxuries, which, side note, and I totally forgot to mention this last episode, we would still have podcasts after the revolution. We were in business. <laughs> yeah, Kropotkin's revolutions leave us with podcasts. We're, we're boofing, we're, 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 we're having the, the, Shit, I had a fucking joke for this earlier about suppositories and bread. God damn it. Uh, bread suppository? Welcome to the bread suppository. <laughs> God fuck. <laughs> Welcome to the bread suppository podcast. Uh, we are your hosts. Unfortunately, Zulakath uh, has been gulagged. Uh, he had to be re-educated. For- he started to get a little counter-revolutionary. Yeah, he started talking something about Trotsky, so I gave him an ice pick. <laughs> I thought it was an ice axe. It doesn't matter. It was in Mexico. So we basically read theory and then shove it up your ass for you. You're welcome. Well, no. See, I just, I just boof the whole book. You know, I put it on, I put it on a flash drive and I shove it up my ass. Is this transhumanism? Yep. <laughs> Maybe. Wait, speaking, speaking of, would the USB stick? Go up your ass, in your mouth, in your ear, or would you have a separate port altogether? I mean, I'm assuming that either you would have a separate port altogether, or you have multiple ports on your body like a computer. Um, there would actually, ideally, my body would have I.O. Like, a lot of I.O. You would like I.O., wouldn't you? Look here, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyways, right. welcome to the, the Sapaza boring podcast got him so yeah we're talking about chapters 10 to 11 today we're talking about more work this time it's agreeable work is any work agreeable? good news the uh bread suppository does have a knot <laughs> jesus is it a garlic knot mm. oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that seems like it would burn uh, i'm only if you're vampire i guess i, I mean yeah yeah so is any work agreeable Let's find out next time on Dragon Ball Z. Dun, 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 this podcast has gotten more off the rails as we've done it every single time without fail. Are there even rails? It's impressive. There are no. Where it's it's like that scene from Back to the Future where uh, he's like, "Well, Doc, there's no road here." He's like, "Where we're going, we don't need roads." And then he fucking takes off in the flying car. Yeah, that would be the ending of the movie. Of oh the yeah, it's the beginning one. of the second one, yeah. but. Uh, Ending of the first one. Wait to know your history, Carden. Jeez. So kind of. I, 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 I haven't I, seen most of Back of the Future. Get out. It's very good. Get out. It's it is good. actually really good. But talking about agreeable work. So yeah, some of the things that he's talking about is basically um, a lot of just labor rights stuff. A lot of like union, uh, well not necessarily union rights, but just the idea of people work better in a better working environment. That Which, you know true across the board yeah it's actually it's actually an interesting question do you guys think kropotkin is a unionist fuck yeah well i mean he was specifically supportive of the soviet union 
which in its early stages was just the, the Moscow Soviet, the, not the Moscow Soviet, the Moscow and Petrograd Soviets were basically just giant organizations of union members. So I'd say yes. Okay. Now, if he was a union, he was not a unionist in Northern Ireland, where uh, he supported uh, Ireland staying under Great Britain. That's a different kind of unionist. Uh, we don't rah, talk about rah, those kinds. <laughs> Words mean things, kids. Don't just throw them around. No, they really yeah, don't. Right? It's very interesting because he, he basically kind of predicts the future again where he's talking about, you know, we have such an advance in production and, like, how we can make things so much cheaper or not even or just cleaner and better, but we still sometimes don't just because it's you have to make that infrastructure. And that's basically what he's talking about this chapter. Well, he also, like, in the first one, he actually lays out what it means to be agreeable work. And then, oddly enough, and I think this is where Ocalan and... Actually, um, correction on that, it's actually Ocalan. It's like the C. C is in Cheerios. Uh, A lot of people got mad at us, so I apologize. It's uh, (laughs) Ocalan. I didn't realize we ended up being in a fan base where people would get mad at us. I was just looking through the oh, va- comments on the Vaj video, and everyone was like, "Why do they keep saying Ocalan?" <laughs> but so he takes he t- he kind of leads uh, Ocalan and fucking uh, Bookchin in the whole the whole woman woman's rights things too, which is actually surprisingly forward for his day. Mm-hmm. Because he's talking about you know. It'll be work won't be something that we do to make a living. It'll be something that we do for you know our own agreeable purposes for well being. Yeah, and he even at the end of the part, end of part one, which is the, this chapter only has two parts. At the end of part one, he basically says, you know, as it stands for our regular drudgery, you know, working in the forge, making clothes, making food, what have you, the same will happen with the reproductive labor or the household labor that is currently laid on the shoulders of women. And I think that was very interesting as well. Like at the end of this book, or at the end of this chapter, he says, you know, half humanity subjugated to the slavery of the hearth would still have to rebel against the other half. So what he's saying is that a lot of these more reactionary um, anarchists or socialists at the time who believe that, and still in the the, uh, sort of confined gender roles you would just be making a new class divide and in that sense it's almost very marxian and lo and behold they did oh yeah uh, that's that's how the suffrage movement ended up ended up kind of happening what just marxist women parading through the streets screaming? yeah it was cultural marxism thanks jordan peterson you <laughs> <laughs> have to look to the lobster to know how we structure society uh, Kropotkin, uh, oh, he's yes, a postmodern neo-Marxist, uh, and uh, yeah. Who are who are who who pray tell are the the these uh these postmodernist neo-Marxists? I don't even know of one. Uh, I had to, I, I actually went I, I decided to give myself brain worms and actually went on the Jordan Peterson subreddit one day and hearing them trying to explain what a postmodern neo Marxist was was incredible. Well, since we're going off the rails again, why don't we actually like we <laughs> did you guys ever watch the the Zizek versus Peterson debate where he basically like, did not. destroys them? Yes, oh that was embarrassing. Oh, so embarrassing. P- Peterson just read the Communist Manifesto like 10 years ago and then said, uh, I know everything the communism understander has logged on. And yeah, then right. Zizek called called him out big time. I wish Zizek called him out more, but Zizek, I think, was being more academic about it. But Zizek um, did, well, I think, I think he was more like, you know, I know this guy doesn't know his stuff, so let me just be nice <laughs> to him. Because otherwise well, yeah. it's going to be an absolute massacre. It's called fa- playing with your food. Mm. Yeah, kind of. Well, I mean, but he did go in on him at one point. He's like, "You think that like communism is just the manifesto? What the fuck are you talking about?" Yeah, right. Because he he even said he's like, "I'm not a Marxist. I'm a Hegelian." Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Which, speaking of Hegel, a society venerated by the revolution will make domestic domestic slavery disappear. That is material material dialectics right there. You know, because you know, as you're as you're 
getting rid of the shackles of our other work, you have to get rid of the shackles of those at home, otherwise it just perpetuates slavery. Exactly. And uh, this is why, kind of, like, when we talk about a lot of, you know, this is why a lot of anarchists like to think that in order for the revolution to be complete, or a revolution to be complete, it has to be a global process. We have, you know, if, if we have, like, a process made here in America, that doesn't mean anything if we're still getting supplies from overseas from slave labor in, like, China or Taiwan or... or well, actually, not even Taiwan. It'd probably be, like, more like Thailand and uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. Well, he addresses that sort of Bangladesh. thing uh, later on in the book. He does. He does. Yeah, right around, uh, what, 16? Mm, look at you, Miss Smarty Pants, reading ahead. Yeah, right. Suck my dick. But let's... But let's let's be honest here for a second. If we had an anarchist revolution in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., and even parts of the EU, capitalism would collapse around the world. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I would make the argument even in in, in a country like China that is, if they, if they had an anarchist revolution, it would collapse capitalism because it's unlike. And that's why we need to free Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, well. Yeah. Actually, surprisingly, Hong Kong does have um, a lot of the media is not reporting on this. A lot of media is just reporting on a lot of like the reactionary pro-America side. But Hong Kong, a lot of the protests were actually made by anarchist cells in the city. And so this is kind of this goes into a deeper problem within our even our today's society. And, and Kropotkin uh, kind of doesn't talk about this, but even back then, there's almost this erasure of anarchism from the public record as everyone is either a communist or capitalist and then there's no in between there's no such thing as you know anarchism and we see this with a lot of uh revolutions especially like you know in 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 cuba uh their revolution um had a lot of anarchists in it but no one talks about that because they all ended up uh kind of being purged afterwards by castro well that's because anarchists explicitly stand against really any status quo that Mm. co-ops the state um, and when you have, you know, these communist revolutions, and I don't know if it was you guys I was talking to, but someone said that you, that Lenin was the one who basically coined the idea that anarchists are infantile in their thought processes, because it's I like don't, I, I, I don't think that was us. Well, it, it kind of bring it kind of brings this idea of the anarchities, you know, the the guy the the anarchists oh, who don't man. really know how to bring about the revolution. So, oh well, they're just they're just anarchists, you know, don't really take pay them no mind and it's like i feel like that comes from an idealism that sprouts from how one perceives human nature to be because Mm -hmm. in in a lot of these authoritarian things and we're going off the rails yet again geez well no i I can bring this back I, i what i'm saying is that um in this sense what you're saying is people will say oh it's too utopian to do this Mm -hmm. you don't understand human nature Mm -hmm. but the actual reality is that Kropotkin mentions it specifically he says yes it's it's utopian of course it's utopian but why not strive for utopia than like you know muddle yourself down in in mediocrity this is the exact same thing the fucking democrats in in the u.s don't get where they think like oh what we have to do is we have to come to the table with a compromise and then people will just be okay and it's like no that's not how things work you you set out your principles you show these are the things I believe in. This is what I want to get done. And um, these are the things that I'm not going to step back on. Well, remarkably, it's actually, I've actually noticed that anarchists actually specifically reject. Hmm? Dad, don't worry about it. Just keep recording. Anyways. Um, all right, let's resync. So in five. Four, three, two, one, clap. That was way off. Anyways, we're back. Sorry about the technical difficulties, folks. Um, and it's, it's, how, it's how it happens. Everyone has technical difficulties. This is how a podcast works. So we, we were talking about how um, Kropotkin sees it as utopian because, you know, why, why would we co-opt a state that already exists to sl- enslave us? Where we could just be like, yeah, fuck it, we're gonna scrap the whole thing and start again. Mm-hmm. Which he kind of says in regards to, um, and especially in regards to women's work, or at least in the case of what he's considering the household work that is laid on the shoulders of women. 
Only it will not come about in the ways dreamt of by phalansterians. 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 I don't even know how to say that word. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, the group he's talking about. We'll have to see. I'll have to look that up. I have the audiobook. Phalansterians. I have the audiobook, so I got to hear him say it. Or not, or in the manner often imagined by the authoritarian communists. And this is like explicitly that very thing about, you know, we can't just force people into what we're doing. We have to let them choose it. And by choosing it, we have to basically. And I would be surprised if and now all had of not them read too. It had not read Kropotkin because his entire idea of the cultural revolution where you basically take a a generation and train them in the manner that you want them to be to grow in this is mm. kind of what he's talking about mm-hmm. yeah and he, this the, this kind of chapter is basically just the feminist chapter he's kind of talking about uh it's it's not too long i mean it's, it's there's not really a whole lot to go over um besides the fact yeah, evidently that, at some point he the, the phrase milady comes up but oh god yeah. Does he tip his hat? <clears throat> you know, I, there, I don't know if there was any uh, fedora tipping. He also makes the observation that he's talking about kind of already output at that time was starting to increase so much um, because of like just machinery and stuff. And then he was talking about it'll even increase more, so we'll have to work less and less and less until you basically don't have to work at all. And he was talking about like, you know, uh, uh, in fact, fully in the future, automated have- uh, gay space luxury. Or. Yeah. yeah, fully automated luxury gay space communism. There we go. Hold on, it's 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 actually mutually operated. It's Mosnia, mutually operated sustainable non-binary intergalactic anarchism. <laughs> okay, I like that one. Yeah, that one's good. I did I did find it funny. He does make one wrong prediction where he says instead of having a brushing machine, a washing machine, up plates, and a third washing linen, and so on in each house. To the future, on the contrary, it belongs to the common heating apparatus that sends heat into each room for a whole district with a few spares of lighting of fires. So, uh, he he kind well, of... I don't know what you're talking about. This is exactly how we do things here in Minnesota. He, I, I think he actually was correct on that one, because I'm, if I'm thinking about it, like that's kind of what we do today, because he's talking about in the times where there is no central plumbing, right? So... Nowadays, instead of instead of us taking our water from the river and so so to speak, we heat it up and take it home and heat it up under over a fire. Now we have we have heating units in our own houses, but the, but all that water, unless you're on a well, is pumped in from a central area that is treated and cured. So in a sense, he's right. It's just he didn't he wasn't he was right in kind in form, but not in kind. It's weird because he does then he ends up talking about pretty much centralizing some very domestic shit though because we're talking about the fucking dishes here mm-hmm. that's domestic and personal like, yeah so we're just gonna have a wingnut dishwashers union um, <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i mean we, we kind of do it with the laundry though i mean we do our laundry mat or laundromat so i mean I guess he was kind of right on that. Well, and we also have laundry services that are that offer larger corporations means to um, actually wash uniforms in mass instead mm-hmm. of having people take them home. And it, it, it and it does end up being cheaper in the long run because you're not wasting as much water in each load because instead of you know washing one load at I'm going to say five gallons, you're washing twenty loads at. 15 gallons or 20 gallons of water okay Mm. so are we talking about cheaper in an economy of money or an economy of energy well both both Both. because like you like like you said like anytime you do things on mass it it's going to be a little bit cheaper because you're going to basically fit more not only more no not necessarily energy well i guess energy you could say that you fit more um stuff into what you're doing for the energy that you that you take out or for the energy that you use is to power it in a you sense. more efficiently extract your energy yes yes that's a much more eloquent way of saying it and, and i think he's doing he was do he's proposing I'm it too in high a means, for eloquence yeah he's proposing it in a means to kind of bring the burden off of the women because he's trying to emancipate everybody including those who are who are either slave or house slave servant or wife man always reckons on women to do the housework like well the slavery of women was never an engineering problem yeah 
So if we have a centralized system where everything's getting washed and redistributed, or everything's being generated in in an autonomous way where people don't actually have to perform labor to generate it, then you free up all that labor. Mm -hmm. Or I could go to the dishwasher and just put it in the dishwasher. But it's still kind of centralizing it. Is it? Well, because originally before the dishwasher, you had to wash everything by hand, one by one. And now you're washing them by ma- in mass. Huh, yeah. It's a smaller form of centralization. And like every, every, every single time that you leave that, that faucet on, you're going to be wasting water. Mm-hmm. And that water costs energy to, you know, purify and treat. And every time it goes down the drain, you have to do it again. So I remember that PBS skit. And I do think this is actually an interesting point where he's actually arguing for the centralization of labor. Because a lot of people seem to think that anarchists are like oh we have to decentralize everything all of the time and it's like no that makes it super inefficient that makes it super that makes it very capable of being co-opted by outside forces and i mean that's like the ancap view of anarchism like the ancap view of anarchism is like any sort of like um any sort of uh you know cooperation in general is bad everything must be competition that's like and caps as opposed to what we are saying, which is uh, cooperation. Everyone, we gotta, we gotta make it, make it so that everyone can cooperate and you know live in a better society. And of course, we're winking at you, and you know who you are. Uh, well, <laughs> and I think I think it's also a different form of centralization than what we're used to in terms of modern society, because modern society. Well, it's not a centralization of power anymore. What? It's not a centralization of power. Correct. Yeah, it's not a centralization of power. We're still distributing the power to the people individually, but we're centralizing tasks. Oh, you can make a tagline of that. It's mm. a good point. Power to the people. Never mind. Yeah. Power to the people, but centralization of tasks. Yeah. Well, no, just the power to the people thing. It was, it was a joke. Mm. So moving on to uh, kind of the next chapter, uh, chapter 11, which is free agreement, which is everything about which we we can definitely start talking about ant caps here because free agreement is voluntarianism yeah yeah and so kind of, this podcast is what you might call a free agreement no i didn't volunteer to be here uh you guys brought me here against He's actually my tied up in our in my closet and i <laughs> force him to do this at gunpoint every week every couple of weeks um I feed him maybe once or twice every couple days, just to kind of make sure he sustains himself. Yeah, at least let him out in the yard. No, he's actually a, he actually has a bucket in the corner, and I empty it out every. It, no, he, so he needs the um, he needs the sunlight, man. Yeah, I'm vitamins. Per- I have scurvy. <laughs> he has scurvy. <laughs> Isn't that from like a lack of vitamin C and not vitamin D? And they're the same vitamin C, D, cock, dick doesn't matter. Motherfucker, get back in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back back to Kropotkin, and so he's kind of talking about you know what it means, what free inter- free uh, associate free agreement is what he says really means. Um, so let me see. I think he starts off with what it isn't. Yeah, yeah. He kind of talks about this. Kind of goes into like the concept of like uh, this is like coerced labor, right? I yeah. read this chapter a while ago, so I'm a little bit uh, off on it. Yeah, free agreement is kind of hard to conceptualize when so much of labor is well, comp- is forced, is well, coerced. It's, it's not really that hard to conceptualize because it's everything that we're doing currently. It's just without the threat of death. Or the threat of starvation, or the threat of not being able to pay your bills, right? Or the drudgery of monotony, but that might be a later chapter, I'm not sure. Yeah. He talks about the drudgery of monotony, I think, in here. Ah, excellent. Then, yeah. Monotony is the real killer in the workplace. Yeah, because he actually even specifically, specifically states that everything that we currently have, whether it be, you know, the 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 train system in Mo- in Russia, the the daily paper, the being to build the ability to build houses or create plays or what have you, that's all technically a an act of free agreement. The only thing that we have to overcome is that layer of coercion of oh well I have to do this to pay my bills. 
Right. It's the idea of like, you know, you have to go to college to get a quote unquote good degree. Otherwise, uh, you won't be able to pay your bills or have money or whatever. So you can't focus on what you would actually are talented and passionate about. You have to focus on some random bullshit. Yeah. And it, but and without some authority to answer to, would we not revert back to barbarism? Uh, that's a different so. conversation because that, that, that brings into the question of what is authority and how do we attribute authority to versus power right? i mean that sounds like the you know type of obligation our friend second mention inside of five minutes um thanks yeah well actually yeah this, so that, that i guess that would be this is a good jumping off point to the, discuss the differences between authority and power um or authority without power and authority with power right uh, and the what the thing that comes to mind right now is like the difference between um, a college student sleeping with her teacher to get good grades or his teacher to get good grades or a college student sleeping with a previous professor that they're no longer under because they happen to enjoy their company. Mm-hmm. There's still that authority that exists there of the elder or even the teacher imparting wisdom upon the student, but the difference is whether or not that power is being utilized to coerce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I uh, kind of had a little bit of a question about this chapter was that. So we agree that uh, basically what Kropotkin's saying, and like in his in his ideal society, everyone would uh, work, and then every everyone would work a certain uh, number of hour, or hours a day just to you know keep things running, and then they'd, they'd be able to do whatever they want. But then if you had people that refused to work. Then you would basically. Well, they can be dismissed. Well, yeah, they can be dismissed. But I'm saying, isn't that a threat of violence? Wouldn't that therefore make that labor somewhat coerced? Kind of. So somewhat. Here's well, the thing: is in order to protect yourself against those kind of, well, a loafer like that, you you have to have some you have to have some way of doing that. The least violent way is to say, "Hey, you're not in our community anymore." Mm. because you're not pulling you're, you're becoming a liability to everyone here yeah but I, like I that's, think the it's like a self-care thing you know well I, I think the question also is arises because i actually had this conversation with somebody let me actually pull up this conversation because it, i i felt it was very poignant in that people were there was a there was another anarchist i was talking about and they were complaining about oh well how do we how do we specifically state well we we are only letting these kinds of people into our community so why are how is that not creating a creating a, dif- a differential power dynamic in which the the person that is attempting to get into the community is looking towards the quote-unquote power or the authority of the community to survive and yeah it can be inherently violent but it's also violent to join a community and leech off the resources right Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a self-defense like Cardin was saying where it's kind of like taking care doing self-care it's it's not it's not with violence it's reacting to violence cut someone off who's toxic it's an act of self-care yeah 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 as opposed to where like if you if you would view I, I guess what you're saying is like i'm kind of viewing it in, in a in a wrong light almost like if i'm saying oh well i should stay in this relationship because he says if i don't then he's gonna kill himself or whatever yeah oh yeah Oof, miss me with that shit yeah, yeah. definitely okay that makes sense and, and to kind of and to kind of expand it to unions to kind of make uh maybe a little more poignant and modern argument for our listeners in a union you are you join the union as a as an act of free agreement right you're saying i want to work here and i don't necessarily have to join the union but i'm joining the union because i understand the benefits the union provides for me but if as a worker who is part of the union or even not part of the union i'm not doing my job i'm making the workplace more toxic for the for the members of the union or the or my coworkers then at some point the coworkers or the union is going to step in and be like look dude we understand that you want to work here but you got to make it you got to make it look like you want to work here and not just say that you want to work here mm-hmm. you you have to put your best foot forward and we all lift together yeah 
okay well i guess we're just sort of saying the warframe song now <laughs> oh yeah no i referenced it a lot in my notes but i do want to come and circle back to a previous point you made about uh, authority without power so authority without power in the kropotkonian society you'd um it kind of implies that authority would essentially in that context be more expertise than anything yeah and and that's where that's where the the terminology of authority gets a lot of gets a lot of muddied mud thrown on it because people are like oh well you're against authority but you like you like parents you like teachers and like well that's not necessarily the same thing yeah parents it's a have, difference yeah so parents and teachers have power but it is where it is where the to to make an authority without power it's you know i'm taking this class with a teacher but i can take any class with any teacher just as easily or i'm not necessarily paying for this class i'm just going to someone that i think has expertise and they're imparting their wisdom upon me and if they happen to do something that i disagree with i can break that connection and find another another person with the same with the same level of expertise i think it comes down to kind of just versus unjust hierarchy just because of kind of in in an unjust hierarchy a good example of this would be you know u.s senators and whatnot because they hold so much power to legislate anything but they don't have you know the means to do it you would much rather have you know someone who who knows who has spent their whole life like an like a, a scientist making environmental regulations but they don't they only get to uh basically um you know advise in a certain sense and even then that's a very loose thing because people can just say no i'm not going to do that and we've seen that all over and it has very drastic consequences whereas in in a more anarchist society you are going to have hierarchy but it's going to be earned it's like almost like the idea of a it's almost like the boomer idea of bootstraps except like you know actually kind of existing in a certain sense where you have people who specialize in a certain field and they they kind of um you know dedicate their lives to that field so therefore if they have you know if they spend their whole lives reading and 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 showing that they are passionate about this should they not be the ones to uh you know run the show in that field yeah it's accountability and devotion well yeah of course there's accountability issues where where uh you know senators uh are not as accountable as, say, you know, an academic that uh, fucks up their research or specifically uh, screws up their research for an agenda. Like, there's a lot. There's a, there's a huge difference there. Well, you don't know what I mean. Like the difference, the difference between unjust and just hierarchy is the level of accountability and the level of devotion that the person is putting into that hierarchy. So, like, the the, the good example, a good example is kind of going back to Oshalon where he his his hierarchy the the levels of power where people are making policy decisions those people are still ultimately accountable to those below them they're not mm -hmm. bringing they're not bringing the power from on high they're bringing it up right and it's I more think, of like just an organization thing yeah so and i and i think that's where anarchy kind of steps in against the the more traditional modes of power is that it's bringing the power from the people themselves from the individual as opposed from a higher power from a god so to speak mm -hmm. yeah um and the note on um unjust hierarchies i mentioned earlier was um i think most modern hierarchies tend to be a bit on the unjust side at best because you have the hierarchical structure before you add the group of people so they have to fit into that well most governments are like this like the structure is assumed to work and it is everyone's job to prove it to prove it kinda but I, I think it's less I think it's less of generating the hold on let me, let me make sure I have this right you're saying that that's the unjust hierarchy right yeah and a just hierarchy it's a free association of people and someone who yeah. shows themselves to be an expert in some part or all parts of the thing, yeah, you know, and, and, rise to the level of their incompetence. Yeah, and kind of, kind of speaking to that that dichotomy of power, where he, Kropotkin even says, you know, what 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 do we do if we have a larger community versus a smaller one? And obviously, the larger community is going to lay down the law, so to speak. And he's like, well, yeah, kind of. It's but it's the support 
that give that is given to them by the the state in his example or by a higher authority a higher power so to speak that is causing the suppression to be brought down whereas if we have a system not even like a hierarchical system but a but a system of organization where the the individuals that are not necessarily even higher but the individuals that are associated with the system are held accountable to and have a devotion to the people that elect them or that they freely associate with that is where the oppression will end because if you have the accountability and you have that devotion then you're not you're a you're not going to be able to oppress because people are going to be like uh what the fuck what if what the fuck are you doing that's not what we agreed to and b you're not going to want to because ultimately you're still you're going to have the devotion to the people and want the best thing for them mm-hmm. sounds about right well, I mean, it's the same thing where it goes back to, you know, even people in ancient times understood this, where if you have uh, an army, and or you have a rebellion, right, the, the best way to put it down is to use an army from a different region, and then put it down because they have less of connection to those people, and they're easier to dehumanize. It's harder to kill your family than it is to kill some random person you don't know, and don't believe is a part of your quote-unquote tribe. And so and that- that's, yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say that, and, that, and that's why the the story of the Christmas Day ceasefire in World War One was such a huge thing. Because after they humanized the other side, they were like, "I can't. How do I fight these people? They're my friend." Hmm. That's very true. I mean, do you guys know of the Christmas Day ceasefire? I know about the Christmas the, the 1914 ceasefire. Yeah. Everybody knows about that. that was, what wasn't clear to me was like. I, I didn't know what happened after. It was always like, oh, yeah, and then they issued them orders never to do that again. I was like, okay, so did they just go back to killing each other after yeah, they pretty like, much. met up? Pretty much, but it was different. Yeah, kind of. It was I, awkward now. No, I, I feel like, if I'm remembering correctly, they kind of, there was kind of um, a lot of the individuals, they, they had to send the people that were on those front lines away because they would refuse. They would disobey orders. Mm. So, yeah, there was still, like, fighting on that front line, but it was only with the people that they ended up bringing in that, that weren't involved in the ceasefire. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good point. So, then we go on to talk about um, how the state, how the, the authority with power tends to favor the the larger capital and typically crushes the lesser one. And we actually see this in modern-day society where we have these huge international conglomerates coming into small towns and destroying the the, the local economy. Well, even in neocolonialism, you can see it where you just basically suck the resources from the global south to the global north. Mm-hmm. And it, it happens all the, all the time. It's not, you know... This wasn't anything new. Like it was more obvious, and even I think it's even more obvious in Kropotkin's time because you don't have things like that hide it, that shield, that 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 almost uh, fetishize that violence, like the IMF, like the World Bank, and things like that, where you're still stripping resources, but it's less obvious, so people can have a sort of um, that actually uh, that actually deniability. Did, did Lenin write? Uh imperialism the late the last stage of capitalism before or after the revolution i think he wrote it after i'd have to check yeah because he because to kind of even quote lenin like he was even saying that giving loans to these smaller countries like the imf does and i guess i don't think the imf existed back in that time but no 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 well i mean it was he's more talking about so what ended up happening like with Haiti where basically Haiti's like hey I want to be independent and uh, France is like no 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 and then finally France after getting their asses kicked said fine you can be independent but you have to pay off this huge fine which they didn't pay off until 2006 Jesus damn yeah so like it was an absurd fine and basically Napoleon just needed the money so basically it drove Haiti into abject poverty they got their freedom, but they were at what Bit of cost? a victory there. Yeah, yeah, and, and I can kind of see that as applying to the IMF, but even less so to, but even more so to these international companies. You know, sending their their factories overseas to pay, you know, the, the third world, the, these global South countries, pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. 
and because that's a form of that's a form of neocolonialism. But instead of it being so direct, you're you're indirect. You're making it an indirect colonialism because you're stealing the labor even more than you could. In labor and the resources. Yeah, you're stealing the labor and the resources. And you're looking at an international division of labor too. Mm-hmm. Like dividing labor by country now. Yeah. Well, and that's that's kind of why anarchists stand against borders because if you have borders and you have these states that are enforcing the borders, you have less of a chance for international solidarity. You can pretty much lock people into the factory country too mm-hmm. with a border. Oh yeah, a lot of uh, nasty things you do with them. Oh yeah, that's that's what, like like you said, that's where the term neocolonialism really comes from. It was a way to describe this colonialism without. Um, you know, actually going back to the old roots of colonialism, which is just going in there and, and strictly making it a colony, where you make it an air stats colony and you have plausible deniability to say, oh, no, we're just helping them, when the reality is you are stripping them of their resources and their labor. Yeah, they have their own country. They have their own elections. It's not us. They're doing it of their own free agreement. Exactly. It's it's the illusion of free agreement. It's, it's, it's what neoliberalism is, is built on, the illusion of... Uh, even even in the name, it's the illusion of having free trade and f- open borders and free well, markets. This, the, it's this illusion is how capitalism has lasted as long as it has, because by all rights, it should have collapsed long ago. Because this is fucking insane. Well, it would have collapsed. It would have collapsed before World War Two, but the rise of fascism cemented it. All right, forgot about fascism. Uh, in a certain sense, there's also I think you're, you're after World War Two, the Keynesian economic school kind of helped to put a bandaid on it, and then that failed in the '70s, and then you have the rise of neoliberalism. So you have all these t- that kind of bandaid programs onto capitalism in, in general that kind of prop it up, but time and time again, like like even even with neoliberalism. Uh, it's just a cycle of boom and bust. We're about to go into another recession. We had yeah, one in 2008. So uh, the kind of rollback neoliberalism that allowed for the housing crisis is still here. Uh, uh, I don't... Uh, so, but even the, even the cycle of boom and bust is not like, oh, well, it's just, it just happens to be that every couple of years the, the economy collapses. It's more like every couple of years the the uber rich buy out and cash out and consolidate mm-hmm. their power and resources into their own pockets and that's what causes the bust because they're pulling massive amounts of capital out of the economy mm-hmm. and we're talking like we're not talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars we're talking like millions upon billions of dollars because that's what well, this is the, this is what happened with the bailout is that the government instead of nationalizing the banks and then saying you know you're going to work to pay back that interest because we own the people the american people own you now it is your job to pay them back for the money that we bailed you out with what they did instead was took that money and said you can do whatever you want with it because we don't want you to fail and then they just paid their ceos a bunch of money and fucking and uh, went to the cayman islands yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. Well, that's because uh, Obama and Bush were both in the po- both had uh, Wall Street in their pockets. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 clear as day. That's the reason why. I mean, it, it, it the stark contrast between what FDR did during the Depression and what um, Obama did not do during his administration is you know clear as day and very obviously they turned out very differently because you know after the Depression. There wasn't, we, we don't see, um, we're not, there wasn't like, um, after FDR got elected, I mean, there was like a, a little recession after he got elected, some of his policies were in place, but like after that, like you, with, with the start of World War II, which a lot of capitalists like to make the po- point of, well, actually it was World War II that um, allowed America to, uh, you know, make all its money back, and I would say, no, 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 you're putting the cart before the horse, you don't have any proof that it was not FDR's policies, all you're saying is that, hey, World War II helped, which it did, but it was not the be-all, end-all, if Obama was running the country during that time, you would be in a much worse place, and that's the point, because, you know, FDR... Uh, during that time, when everyone is doing all that, instead of having the banks foreclose on a bunch of people's homes, the government offered to buy back those mortgages and then basically save those people from foreclosure. And that's what they did. And Obama didn't do that. And it fucked people. And it basically led to the rise of fascism and lies of Trump because people were pissed. They lost their homes. They lost everything. 
Well, and he he completely had the power to, right? With yeah, tar- exactly. With tarps with the tarp program, like he he completely had the power to nationalize the banks and the power to literally buy out all of these people's uh, mortgages and restructure them so that they were capable of paying them off. But he was just like, eh, fuck it, let's let's just let the market do what it will. Well, I mean, because he was in the pocket of, of Wall Street. This is this is the point where it's an unjust hierarchy, where he's not an expert like in economics. He was a fucking lawyer. He's not fit to have these sort of you know, you know. He has to he has to go back to his advisors, and of well, course, we are literally trained from birth to believe that capitalism is a good thing. So of course, he would let the market do what it will do. Well, not only that, but like even though. Because from what I understand, because I because I'm listening to like old podcasts about what Obama did during those years, I, I feel mm-hmm. like he started out as a little bit left, like at the very at the very least, if not like a progressive neolib, at least a a suckdem. He played lip service to it, but I think he was pretty much always solidly in the pocket of Wall Street, but which my, was a huge problem. But the point I'm trying to make is that his advisors were very explicitly. Like they were the neoliberals, right? They mm-hmm. were explicitly neo- the neoliberals. The Chicago fact, most of them, boys. Most of them were both on the Bush and the Clinton administrations. Mm-hmm. So they were just perpetuating the same system. Which, even if we look at Trump now again, now nowadays, a lot of those people were either on the Bush, Clinton, or Bush Bush Senior uh, administrations. Yeah, yeah. People, or, even like looking at his fall like foreign policy, and people like fucking uh, Elliot Abrams, who's still kicking around and hasn't died. Uh, you have uh, what um, John Bolton, who's a billion years old, and like yeah. these people, they 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 don't have. Again, it's an unjust hierarchy. It's just how long you stay there means how much power you have, rather than how much expertise you have. Then. That's how much power you have. And of course, with Obama, he did not have the economic, you know, I, I would say necessarily that not only did, did he not have the economic know-how to, to handle this, but when, when, he, when he fell back on his advisors, his advisors had an agenda, so they gave him the advice that would make them the richest. Yep. And it's, it's like and a, a crass version of, it's like a crass version of nepotism. But with a weird layer of meritocracy on top of it, it's like, well, I made it this far. It's by... a veneer of meritocracy. Yeah, Be- it's because a the ideal mer- Yeah, because the ideal meritocracy is not going to be the same people constantly doing the same job. It's going to be, hey, we got this one person doing this job. Okay, well, let's rotate them out every every so often. Yeah. Because because younger people tend to bring better not necessarily better, but they bring fresh ideas in because they're not ingrained in the system and they're not constantly trying to perpetuate the same narrative and the same agenda that the the people who came before them it's are. It's fresh eyes. I mean, hell, what's what's the median age of our senators? Like, 90? Right? No, I, I, think, it, I think it's actually closer to, like, the early 60s, but still, that's... That's still, yeah. I mean... It's still boomers. That's just nothing but boomers who've been in power for the past 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, they don't know what the world's like. They have not been shaped by it. Just listening to the... And, and these are the people also, and go, going back to almost like a cyber thing, again, this is an unjust hierarchy because these are the people that make uh, policy on uh, internet. And they don't know what the, like like listening to some of like the inside uh, works of people talk like people in, in their aides tried to tell them how the fucking internet works and how an iPhone works. It's just comical because they don't know what they're doing and they have no right to you know legislate these sort of things. They have no author- they have no authority because they don't know what they're doing and they're just going to default to whatever someone else tells them. It's like again with Trump. Trump has no idea what he's doing. He's going to default to whatever someone tells him who's the last person in the room. Well, they're probably banking on, you know, being dead before this is a problem. Oh yeah. Or or at the very least being able to accumulate enough capital to mitigate the damages for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's more what going on the climate change aspect. And then, then they'll say, and then, you know, I, I fucking swear if I hear in, in 20 years fucking boomers talk about, well, it was inevitable, we couldn't do anything, I'm going to kill myself. Because that's generally the argument where it's like, it ha- a, a thing happens, uh, people warn about it, and then they go, no, 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 it's not going to happen. Then finally, thing actually does happen. They're just like, well, it was inevitable. You know, we tried to warn you where the reality is, you know, the people that tried to warn them are either, you know, dead 
because they were the poor people who were most affected by it or like you know laughed out of their field because or not even laughed out of their field but just respected in their field but you know not respected by the rest of the country so they're essentially you know non-people well well, i think it's because we have a weird we have this weird duality of both respecting academia but also vilifying it in our culture because it's like people who are in 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 academia are like oh well they're the they they worked hard to get there they're the 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 education the educate the educated elite but at the same time, we're also vilifying them, be like, "Oh, well, you live in an ivory ivory tower. You don't know how the world actually works." That is almost the start of fascism, where it's this anti-intellectualism, where you see people hating on academia from the, basically because it doesn't confirm their own biases. This is like the other day when I was on Facebook and I got called, uh, "What is it? Uh, indoctrinated by my college education?" And it's like, well. No, I thought these things before I was in college, and the college just gave me a good enough ammunition to actually go out and make my policy positions. I'm sorry that, you know, they don't agree with yours, and, and that's the thing. I, I do kind of want to expand it to the, the anti-theory anarchists, the people that I call, well, mm. I don't need to learn theory, but it's like, well, kind of, because you're not only A, are you already using it, but B, it also gives you words to power, Right. It allows you mm. to speak against the injustices that you are seeing instead of just being like, well, I have this vague feeling of I f- I'm feeling fucked over by the system, but I don't know what, what it is or how to put my finger on it. So I'm just going to go around and, you know, throw, th- uh, break, bust windows and bur- like trash cans on fire, which mm. not, not saying that they're bad praxis, but without understanding why you're doing that and what it would cause in, in the long run. It makes it seem kind of aimless. kind of trite, yeah, aimless. And then, of course, people in the mainstream media like to latch onto that and then say, "Ah, oh, these anarchists are just out; they're just rabble rousers doing whatnot." And also, are trying to avoid that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is um, uh, when I was in Greece again, I saw. I remember I saw a lot of graffiti, and a lot of it was actually a lot of anarchist graffiti. But specifically in Greece, there was not a whole huge. Um, theoretical anarchist movement it was just a a, a gut feeling and i yeah, think so, that so basically you went to go see some anarchists and they you, they started beating you up and you started screaming stop breaking my nap stop breaking my nap <laughs> <laughs> no but uh close now i i think the thing is is that uh people need to realize that there's a you see let's go back to the dialectic mm-hmm. you have the one dialectic which is theory is dumb and pointless and the other dialectic that theory is all there is. And so I, like the true master of power, okay, have so created a synthesis. We're sitting here falling, what do we do? See, that's the, that is the problem with theory that, you know, does exist, is it is paralyzing. Well, no, I think, I think the thing is, is that you can get so caught up in it and think it's the be-all, end-all, you have to combine it with praxis. And Young Hegelians! <laughs> Mm. I'm sorry, what? Young Hegelians. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Exactly. You have to know when theory... Theory is but a tool that you can use, and it's a very powerful tool that helps you aim where your praxis should go. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily saying you need to sit down and read a thousand books. It's more being able to sit down with your comrades and be like, okay, we need to do something, and we need to know why we're doing it. What are we doing, and why are we doing it? That is and what effects it might have. Yeah, that is theory. It's sitting down and trying to understand both the actions and the reactions of what you're doing. It's sitting down with your top hats on, smoking a cigar, going, hmm, yes, what are we doing today, comrades? No, I, I think it's more like along the line of Marx, where he's sitting in a room getting drunk all by himself, and oh, yeah, sometimes yeah. Angles comes by and goes, dude, we gotta get out of here, and he goes, sure, let's go to a bar, and Angles goes, dude, no, you've drunk enough already! <laughs> Yeah, it's basically it's like okay so when we win now what you know what do we do after we win let's make a plan for that well not only that it's like how we win and and what tactics can you use to get people on your side and kind of show people this inequality because people i think automatically will believe you if, if you kind of show them you know this inequality because it's a very intuitive system 
but you just have to kind of you know de-brainwash them in a sense yeah so what there was a, there was a meme that's floating around it's like if you want to be a neoliberal just passively ingest all of the mainstream media if you want to be a, pa- a fascist just passively ingest all of you know 4chan culture but if you want to be a socialist here's a thousand books that you have to read and relearn the entire history and all of history and economics have fun learning which one's which because you only have so long before you die yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's like that because well and i do think it's because of mccarthyism that you know there is a greater burden put on leftists to justify all of their beliefs and such and i think that on, on one hand i think that also makes us stronger because we're much able to argue much more concretely and much more distinctly what we believe right but and it's I think because that, we're in that position that we have to be as you know strong as we are yeah yeah because we're, we're arguing against the status quo yeah we're arguing yeah, against you, you, you power want, here you have to kind of also realize like you have to realize your audience. You have to realize, you know, coming off as pretentious. Like, if I'm sitting next to, like, you know, my family in West Virginia and I just start saying, well, Hegel says this and then Marx says this, they're going to think I'm a crazy person. No, Con, listen, if you just you just need to tell them, just read Hegel. They'll understand Hegel after you read them. That's it. You know, you <laughs> no, to, don't do that. You. you just have to read Hegel, man. Fucking, I, I, I have not read Hegel. People who've read Hegel don't read, don't, don't know what Hegel's saying. Fuck, it, fuck Dude, off. Dude, Hegel... Hegel was the best person to explain Hegel, and even Hegel can't even explain Hegel. I thought Kant was hard to read. Dude, don't even get me started on Kant. No, I'm, I'm reading uh, Groundworks and Metaphysics and Morals in my uh, ethics class, and it's interesting. Yeah. Although I, I do much like more like utilitarianism as a concept, because I think it just kind of is suited better. Yeah, but utilitarianism leads to gulags. No, that's not what utilitarianism is. You see, actually, good utilitarian argument. Alright, I'm gonna I'm gonna argue a utilitarian standpoint here. It does not lead to gulags because that violates your secure security. And therefore, any action that is going to violate your security on the part of society should not be taken. But if we're but if we're actually trying to place society above the, the realm of the individual and we're placing the value above, of society security the security of society above the security of the individual the gulags actually work better as a utilitarian concept because we're sending individuals that we deem as either inappropriate or counter-revolutionary that are going against the security of the society or we could just dismiss the, them oh that's anarchist never mind but this Again, but you're violating that person's rights, their fundamental rights to, you know, not be imprisoned without cause. So the, 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 the way that I kind of conceptualize utilitarianism, to kind of take a, take a step back before we even go too far down this rabbit hole, because I feel like that's going to be like another hour conf- conversation. Um, By the way, we just pressed an hour. Yeah, on the trolley problem, the utilitarian is going to kill the one as opposed to the many. Yes, in a certain sense, but also you have to realize um, one of the things about, again, this that's that's the strictly, you know, that's Bentham and, you know, act utilitarianism that looks at every single action just says pick whatever one is the least, you know, least harmful. So it, when, it sees each action in a vacuum. Yes, when uh, I, I subscribe more to rule utilitarianism, which basically says when you, whenever you have, um, you basically have a set of core rules that you believe that you should not violate, you know, like don't kill people, don't uh, lie or whatnot, and then whenever you have those two rules, whenever you have two of those or more of those rules um, sort of In come into... In conflict, yeah. In conflict, then you should choose the outcome which leads to the least amount of suffer, or least amount, or the most utility. The least possible harm. The least possible harm, yes. Well, not even the least possible harm, just the most utility. Most utility, yes. Because you could still harm individuals, but it would ultimately lead to a more positive result in the long run. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyways, kind of bringing it back around. Um, we were reading a book. Yeah. Wow. Wow. If, if we if we simply just come together like a union of egoists, then I can claim you as my property. And the only time that you say that you won't be my property is if you can prove to me via force that it's property. Actually, should we read freaking um, what's her name? Uh, Simone, I think was her name. She, she was basically I, she was the one that argued that all of history is not a interaction between individuals but an interaction of 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 power I don't I do not recall who that was 
I'm scared. not familiar. I think I, we can I we can we, we can read it next time. But I think we're starting to reach the end of this pod. I think we we've had a. I think the first part was a little bit dragging, but uh, I think we made it up in the second. Oh, so part. we haven't actually gotten to part two of the second chapter in this episode, and do we want to actually uh, get through this chapter? Wait, what, what's part two? I thought we did part two. Um, of chapter eleven. Yeah. I think we. Um, I mean, most of, most of what we were talking about kind of ties a lot into it. I mean, we didn't really like reference the source material, but a lot of this is basically talking about how how what it means to have free agreement, what it means to be oppressive, um, and his parts. That was his part two, and his part three goes into how do we act as a commune to to maximize the entire the entire freedom of the individuals so that we're not sitting here and acting upon power which mm. kind of goes into the, the entire idea of authority which is what we were talking about um oh, yes, he even yes. says and even even talking about the 0208 crash and he even talk, talks about everywhere the state is abdicating abandoning its holy functions to private individuals we're not we're not acting upon we're not acting upon the good of the individual as a society, we're acting upon the good of an individual as a capitalist mm. society. Almost as the good, the good of the corporation is above the good of the individual. Yeah. And then we assume that the corporations are best for society when that is not the ch- case. Well, we hold up the yeah. survival of the corporation as an example of that, but the corporation survives by literally, um, well, you know... A giant mass death machine? Yeah. You're right. You're right. Like grinding men to dust between its gears. Yeah, that's not a that's not a good uh, machine there. That's uh, I think I think the thing is with um, so Kropotkin, specifically in the second and, and third part of this book, he goes into kind of um, the he makes a lot more. We we made a lot of more modern examples of what he was talking about with with free agreement, but he talks about more older examples. Like he's talking about uh, see when it was written. It's kind of in the middle. I believe this is in the middle of the um, Crimean War, if I recall correctly. Uh, what he was talking about stuff. Something like that. Some of the some of the stuff he mentions. It's around that time, so he's making reference to those sort of uh, things. But it's the same thing. I mean, again, like we said with neo-colonialism, nothing really changes except the the way you act upon it the violence is still there mm-hmm. and the, the hurt is still there and the exploitation is still there it is just fetishized and and, and, and thrown about in a different way and I, I do kind of want to make a point with that is in that people are claiming that anarchists are violent and it's like well no not inherently most anarchists are pacifists they're just acting out of self-defense when a system as pervasive and as oppressive that as one of that exists is utilizing violence both both innate uh both direct and indirect to enact its idea ideals you basically can't exist peacefully when there are people you know ready to do violence to you You'd have yeah, to be able well, to. they're already doing violence. Like, this is what the thing, like, if you read uh, Walter Benjamin's uh, Critique of Violence, he kind of goes into this, where, you know, the violence is just more visible when, when anarchists do it because the state not only highlights it because it's a threat to their hegemony, but it's just, you know, more visible in the fact that it's not systemic. Whereas, it's not you know, you make the argument. By the, for some reason, accepted state. And remind you, the state is only accepted because we're trained to accept it. Mm-hmm. In a certain sense. Well, yeah. Well, it, it's kind of you're you're right. By by enacting a violence, we are we are standing up against the monopoly of power, the monopoly of violence that the state has. I mean, yeah, they will accept certain acts of violence that perpetuate its its uh, its status quo. Its um, the state also has the monopoly of information. It's resources. Yeah. Of, yeah. of yeah. evidence. And the recent, you know, fact of more and more people having handheld cameras has become a problem to the state. That's why the guy, the only guy that got arrested in, in regards to the Eric Garland case where he was choked, I believe it was Eric Garland, where he was choked to yeah, death. Yeah, the one uh, in New York. Was the, 
was was the guy holding the camera because again it's about the state's power and you know the NYPD thought that hey the fa- that's not the fact that we're doing this that is wrong it's the fact that people know that we are doing this and the that, that, that fact that people can call us out now and the, so people who you know people who this is this, this is one of the things I, I was mean, listening getting to caught um, a problem and maybe what you're doing is wrong well no th- yeah exactly Especially in a but position i think one of, of the power. things was um there was a good discussion on useful idiots i was listening to that podcast good podcast with matt taibbi and uh oh, what's her name Oh god, I'm <laughs> I'm dissing that podcast, but it's a good podcast. But they were having a discussion about you know the current uh, quote unquote whistleblower, and you know you see all these people in Congress talking about you know whistleblowers are good, and, you know they're they're trying to help other people, but none of these everyone shut up when Chelsea Manning was doing this. Everyone shut up when when fucking Edward Snowden or Julian Assange was getting tortured and languishing in prison they didn't give a shit about them so it just matters where it's like just because donald trump in their eyes and in, in the view of the of, of kind of in this certain case members it's of more the quote unquote important to people to get trump out so yeah well yeah but well people don't realize the whole point is is that it's more trump is more embarrassing than to members of the deep state and they believe he's a disruption to the status quo so he must be eliminated much like you know, Julian Assange, much like Edward Snowden. It's as simple as that. But that's also why the 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 senators in power aren't like they're dragging their feet on trying to impeach him because he is perpetuating the same shit that they've been doing. Oh yeah, but he's only he's doing it without the veneer of the presidential the presidential uh, air, right? And He's that's what Obama. they don't like. That's what they... Yeah, exactly. It, 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 I think I heard this in a while, a while but uh, someone said that Obama was basically like the perfect counterinsurgency sort of president because, you know, he killed without remorse, without uh, recompense, and he bragged about it in private, but you never heard him say anything in public. And, you know, for, like, people on the right, that was a bad thing because they they like Trump. They like Trump who, who rabble-rouses and does all this stuff, but Trump, you know, is... Honestly, less hawkish at, at some points than Obama, which is surprising. It's it's the issue of whether or not you want to be seen or you don't care about being seen. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the Republicans they don't like pretending that there's something that they're not. And in a sense, Democrats tend to be more more vicious and more violent against the the more left leaning movements because they pretend to be the ally and then stab you in the back. Whereas the whereas the uh, American right, the Republicans sit there and they go, "Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend to be your friend. I'm just gonna tell you, I'm gonna stab you and then stab you." Yeah, they'll stab you in the face. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and so the, the, it's it's pick your poison, but it's it's the whole thing where it's like, again, this this is how you know states have operated like this for for years. I think I'll have a Moscow it's mule. It's like good cop, bad cop, mm. or bad cop, worse right. cop. Yeah, what about all cop, bad cop? Got him. All right, I think with that, uh, this has been the Furries Get Bradfield podcast. I'm Colin Fight. I'm the Gecko. I'm Carden. All right, and uh, have a good one. Yes. Oh, hey, this is the part where we stop recording, right? Thanks, Thanks, Captain. Captain. Captain.